This is Africa Digest. It is 1700 hours Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa. As we give you news from an African perspective, we are broadcasting to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. My name is Spumelele Zondi. Hello, welcome to the program. You can find us on 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band if you're in Southern Africa. You can also find us on 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. I'm with Joala Netulo, Hussani Matebula and Mosibudi Makura. Your top stories. Reports from South Africa suggest that President Jacob Zuma may reshuffle his cabinet. Corruption watchdog finds new evidence linking Zimbabwe's military and intelligence agency with companies operating in the Marange Diamond field. In economics, Kenya's economy feeling the heat of a year-long season of political campaigning and elections. And in sports, nations arrive in Zimbabwe ahead of the 2017 Kosafa Women's Championship. Joala Netulo has your news. Thank you, Spumelele. Good afternoon. Three Angolan opposition parties have lodged an appeal at the constitutional court in the country against the outcome of last month's election. The National Union for the Total Independence of Angola, UNITA, and two smaller parties, the FNLA and PNS, are arguing that the electoral process has failed to comply with the law and want the results to be declared invalid. The move comes after the National Electoral Commission published final results last week, which gave MPLA 61% of the vote and UNITA 27%. UNITA spokesperson Alcides Sakala. Uh, we find out uh, many, many, many irregularities during this process, uh, beginning with the registration, uh, and then uh, uh, the location of the National Assembly. Most of them are not really on the map as it should, as it should be. Uh, there was also uh, the tabulation process in the provinces were not done according to the law in most of uh, the provinces in the country. Uh, the level of abstinence were so high, we have more than 2 million people that uh, did not vote there. Members of Kenya's IEC are still locked in a meeting aimed at preparing a a timetable for fresh presidential elections on the 17th of next month. President Uhuru Kenyatta has meanwhile assured members of the business community in the country to carry out their businesses without fear. His deputy, William Ruto, has once again issued a scathing verbal attack on judges of the Supreme Court who nullified the re-election of Uhuru Kenyatta. James Shimayula reports. President Uhuru Kenyatta has assured the country's business fraternity that peace prevails and that there is no cause for fear. His assurance comes a day before the 12th Parliament is officially opened tomorrow Tuesday with Uhuru Kenyatta in attendance. Members of the opposition led by Raila Odinga have vowed to boycott the opening ceremony. This is what Kenyatta told members of the business community. While Kenyatta spoke, reports said eight police officers were killed by suspected al-Shabaab militants in the northeastern county of Mandera, near Kenya's border with Somalia. 
The African Union High-Level Committee has welcomed the interest shown by the Libyan people to resolve the current political conflict in their country. The meeting of the six-member panel that includes South African President Jacob Zuma ended in Congo, Brazzaville over the weekend. The one-day meeting was called to find lasting solutions to the Libyan crisis. Bongani Nulunga is the spokesperson of South African President Jacob Zuma. Well, uh, this was a very important meeting because for the first time all the political factions in Libya attended the meeting, which are fighting with uh, one another. And so it was a very important meeting. And so um, it was agreed that there needs to be a process moving towards the inter-Libyan inclusive dialogue because there has been one of the major challenges that the warring factions have not been meeting at one meeting to discuss the issues because President Zuma as well as the AU general believe that the Libyan political crisis can only be solved by Libyans sitting down and discussing the way forward uh, for the future of Libya. It has emerged that Zimbabwe's First Lady Grace Mugabe gave a statement to South African police denying that she assaulted model Gabriella Engels with an, electrical, with an electric cable in a Johannesburg hotel, claiming instead that an intoxicated and unhinged Engels attacked her with a knife. Mugabe apparently found the young model with one of her sons in a Santon hotel. Reuters news agency says it has seen Mugabe's statement where she claims Engels attacked her with a knife after being asked to leave the hotel. Grace Mugabe was apparently unharmed. She was granted diplomatic immunity by South Africa, causing widespread outrage. And finally, Hurricane Irma is continuing, is continuing to pummel central Florida in the U.S. as it threatens to the heavily populated Tampa and Orlando metro areas. It's still dumping ter- uh, torrential rains, but Irma's wind strength has dropped sharply from Sunday and it has been downgraded from a Category 4 to a Category 1 hurricane. Storm surge warnings remain in place as millions of residents cope without electricity. Uh, Major Richard Rand speaks for the North Miami Beach Police. Right now the winds have died down to a point where I have about 25 units out there right now. We're going street to street, business to business, alleyway to alleyway, searching for any victims of this horrific storm. Uh, We're trying to save lives, get out in the community. We're trying to restore some normalness. We're very serious about any looting or any crimes that happen in uh, North Miami Beach and Miami-Dade County. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Thank you very much, Jolane. Your time is 17.06 Central African time. Now, reports from South Africa suggest that President Jacob Zuma may reshuffle his cabinet after it was announced this weekend that former African Union chairperson Kosazana Lamini Zuma will be sworn in as a member of parliament. The announcement has increased speculation that President Jacob Zuma is likely to reshuffle his cabinet for a second time this year to accommodate the, her in the executive. More on this from political analyst Dumsani Klope, who is with the University of South Africa's School of Governance. It's not a far-fetched speculation, given that Kosovo-Nandamilizuma is going to parliament. And uh, from one sitting, I don't think she is destined to parliament to sit in the backbenches, because that will greatly affect negatively her presidential campaign. So one thing that could assist her in terms of ensuring 
maximum visibility, which is one of the important things if one is campaigning for a leadership position, is to be visible publicly. Being in a cabinet position will assist a great deal, but then it would have to be a cabinet position which does not expose her too much to those heightened criticisms that she could face from the likes of the EFF or the DA mm. in the National Assembly. Now, along with the speculation, Mr. Lopez, of course, a list of uh, likely casualties in this regard. Uh, the speculation around uh, my high education minister Blades Monday being given the boot um, to accommodate Ngozazan Azuma. Um, your take on this? Uh, would this uh, serve her well um, in the lead up uh, to that hot seat that she's uh, vying for? Well, it's it's a knife which is sharp on both sides. Because if if indeed she goes into the cabinet, I think one of the things that Zuma can do, he can remove anyone who's within from the SACP. Because in any event, the members of the Communist Party have already expressed discomfort that they don't trust his leadership. So they've already expressed a dismissal of Zuma's leadership. So... If he reshuffles one or all of them, it won't be a problematic because in any event they don't recognize his leadership. So you can take someone from that pool, which uh, would include, you know, blazing demand. But on the ugly side of it is that he would appear as the state president to be doing almost everything that he possibly can to make sure that. Uh, that Azamini Zuma becomes the next president of the ancient, possibly of the country. But that will not do the campaign of NDZ very good because it strengthens the argument that some are making when they did campaign her, that her presidency will simply be a continuation of Jesus, you know, presidency. So it's quite good and, and bad, but it's, right now it looks like you know, that camp is pressing panic buttons. And uh, on top of all of this um, speculation, of course, there's uh, added speculation that President Zuma could stay on for another term. What complication could this have uh, should it come uh, to fruition? Yeah, but you see, that is likely to be viciously rejected by a significant chunk of ANC members, including those that are possibly, uh, you know, in these camps. Uh, I think generally we have seen since '94 that ANC members are very... Their tolerance span is quite limited when it comes to leaders that seek to stay in position of leadership for much more than they were supposed to do. Uh, you, you remember as well that, you know, um, although constitutionally President Mbeki then could have stayed longer as ANC president, that was around the rejected. And then there's also this ruling by noise within the ANC that says the ANC president will be preferably the president of the country, assuming the ANC wins you know, elections. So all of those do not necessarily present a case for Zuma to stay, you know, a term much longer. In any event, it will also entrench this thinking that, you know, he wants NDZ to carry forward his leaders. Alternatively, if he fails to instill NDZ, then he is likely to do it himself. It's a very thin, you know, he could be walking on thin water if he was to pursue that route.
Political analyst Dumsani Shope, who's with the University of South Africa School of Governance, talking to Zikona Miso. Over the past few weeks, hundreds of people have taken to the streets of Togo, calling for the resignation of President Fore Nyasigbe. These demonstrations have been taking place across the country since August. Opposition leaders had been hoping to force the government to initiate reforms. In 1992, former President Nyasigbe Eyadema actually did introduce a new law which limited the presidential term to two electoral periods. He, however, rescinded in 10 years in order to stay in power until his death in 2005 when he was succeeded by his son. To help us analyze the situation, Channel Africa spoke to Matthias Ohongpe, senior researcher with the Open Society Initiative for West Africa. Steven Grust, senior researcher with the South African Institute for International Affairs in Pretoria, and Lisa Lowe-Vaudron, senior research consultant of Peace and Security Research Programme, also at the Institute for Security Studies. The Gambian case, uh, without exaggerating, I would say that the case in Gambia was a kind of easy. Easy because you have uh, the result of elections and you just want political actors, including the president, to respect people's will. So that was easy to deal with. The second thing is Gambia is a small country and it's smaller than Togo and so on. And the president, Yaya Jame, was like uh, was was not having good relationship with almost any president in the sub-region, maybe one or two. So, quote unquote, it was a kind of easy for ECOWAS to go about the Gambian case. But the case in in, in Togo today is a president who is not who is at two or three years from the end of his term. So, the way you deal with this will have implications for other situation similar situation in, in countries in the future. And I'm, I know something. Presidents are fearful of a kind of allowing citizens to decide to ask them to step down while they are they're supposed to be uh, enjoying a kind of uh, constitutional and legal term. So that is the difficulty of the situation in Togo. The president is not at the end of his term, and now people seem to be asking him to step down. That is really difficult to manage. And I can understand why ECOWAS has been silent so far. The other thing that maybe explains the silence, maybe the public silence, because I'm quite sure that negotiation and mediation are going on underground. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. But the second problem that they are having is the way uh, for Yasinde will react. Because you have like two issues here. People are asking for the limitation of Manda, I mean, of the term to be introduced again into the constitution. But that is one thing. The other thing is, how will they deal with Yasinbe for Yasinbe next elections? Because he will be finishing his third term, 15 years, in 2020. Normally, people are expecting from him to say, I'm stepping down. But I'm not sure he agrees with that. For him, if we will amend the constitution to reintroduce the limited term limit, I should be allowed to go for two terms again. That will be in total, if he wins, 25 years. And I'm not sure people are... So you have like these two different problems that are on the table. Stephen, your thoughts on a way forward? Just, just two things. I mean, one, even if the Constitution is reformed and term limits are introduced, the way that they've set it up is that 
uh, my understanding is that it, would, it actually would start the clock running from 2020, which would allow the sitting Prime Minister, uh, President to still have two additional five-year terms. So he would be around till 2030. I'm not sure with the mood on the street whether that's going to be acceptable, whether they, that, you know, mm-hmm. that people are going to tolerate a possible 10 or, from this point, 12 more years of, of this president. The other is actually, just while I was talking to you, I've been doing some work on the upcoming Israel-Africa Summit, or Africa-Israel Summit, that was okay. meant to be held in Lome in mm-hmm. on the 23rd of October. And just while we were speaking, mm-hmm. um, uh, an email came through to say that this is postponed. Uh, Israel was had invited all 55 African countries, and they were expecting some 20 to 30 of them to attend uh, in Lome on the 23rd of October, and mm-hmm. uh, that's been postponed, which perhaps one might take as a sign. Mm. That uh, there's a lot of instability in the country, and maybe maybe the days of uh, President Faure are, are numbered. Liesl. I agree that the opposition is now so mobilised that they might not be placated with simply a constitutional change, especially if it's going to be another sort of a trick. We've seen it in Senegal with former President Abdoulaye Wade in in Rwanda as well. Okay, I'm changing the constitution. We are reimposing uh, term limits, but from you know from a, a future date. So. Uh, unless Fornia uh, Singbe says, okay, I'm stepping down in 2020 and then we will have two more, you know, uh, um, term limits of two terms. But uh, the situation is very dire and quite explosive. I think the international community and civil society can put pressure on the government to also open up the political space, um, to lift the uh, internet bans and um, to make it easier for people to have their voice heard, even if the AU and the other institutions can't do much. But um, I agree that there probably is some pressure behind the scenes and that um, I, I, I'm not sure. I think people really, really would like to see that change. Ordinary people, just for the president to say, okay, I commit to stepping down at the end of my third term. And that is Senior Research Consultant of Peace and Security Research Program at the South African Institute for Security Studies, Lisa Lovodron. You also heard from Stephen Cruz, a senior researcher also from the Institute for International Affairs. So there was also the voice of Matthias Hongpe, a senior researcher with the Open Society Initiative for West Africa. They were speaking to Benjamin Mashatama. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonye in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbero Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noel Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective.
Your time is 17.19 Central African time right here on Channel Africa as we give you news from an African perspective. The Nigerian commander of the multinational joint task force fighting the Boko Haram insurgency, Major General Lagi Irabo, says the human cost of the war continues to be preoccupying as the terrorists increasingly use suicide bombers to destabilize communities. Major General Lagi Irabo, who visited his troops in Cameroon, Nigeria and Chad, said close to 400 people have lost their lives in suicide bombings since April, even though there have been no mass armed attacks by Boko Haram during the same period. Mokikinzega reports from the northern Cameroon village of Budua on the border with Nigeria, a one-time stronghold of the insurgents. Seventy-five-year-old Abubakar Buba, an elder of Budua village on Cameroon's northern border with Nigeria, pulls his thirsty donkey to a nearby stream. He has been introduced to Channel Africa as one of three survivors of a 2014 attack that left eight people dead in their village mosque. A member of the multinational joint task force asked the 75-year-old how life has been in his village since he returned three weeks ago. He says the loud sounds of bombs that destroyed their village, leaving several people, including the imam, dead three years ago, also ruptured his eardrums. Buba says he is poor and lives on food aid from well-wishers and neighbors. He said his children escaped after the attacks and he has never seen them. It is a village of 200 people now inhabited by barely 70 who say they are starving as the fighting has devastated farmland, leaving farmers unable to cultivate crops or to take care of livestock for several years since Boko Haram launched its campaign of territorial seizure in Nigeria and it escalated with cross-border attacks into the border lake Chad Basin region that includes Cameroon, Chad, Niger and Benin. In 2016, the countries created a multinational joint task force to stop the insurgency and combat armed groups. The regional armies constituted a 7,800-strong force to defeat Boko Haram, a once obscure Islamist sect turned deadly militant group. The armies received military orders from their Nigerian-born commander, Major General Luki Irabu, who visited Limani and Budwa in Cameroon and Amchidi and Banki in Nigeria's Bono state. He said he had come to encourage the troops and to tell them to concentrate on checking suicide bombings the terrorists have resorted to since their firepower was greatly weakened in ceaseless attacks launched on their strongholds in 2016. Boko Haram and other criminal gangs, their end has come. Boko Haram is on the downward trend. Is that clear? Yes, sir. That alone should motivate you to know that the war is being won. And for you to give in the last ounce, ounce of your 
energy and your commitment so that they will be completely defeated. Is that clear? Yes, sir. The general said he was encouraging people to stay in their villages as Boko Haram is almost defeated. He said the military was tackling suicide bombings and invited the population to report all suspected persons and strangers seen in their village. Boko Haram's victims include 2.4 million displaced people. In a report published last week, Amnesty International says search in attacks by Boko Haram fighters has claimed nearly 400 lives since April in Nigeria and Cameroon, double the figure of the previous five months. The spike in attacks by the Islamic extremists is a result of increased use of suicide bombers, often women and girls, who carry out the attacks in highly populated areas in Cameroon's far north region and Nigeria's Bono and Adamawa states, the rights groups said. Cameroon has experienced at least one suicide attack per week. At least 20,000 people have been killed in violence since 2009 and more than 2.6 million people have been left homeless. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzika. Butua, Northern Cameroon. 17.24 Central African time. Now three Angolan opposition parties have lodged an appeal at the Constitutional Court in the country against the outcome of last month's election that asserted the 42-year grip of the ruling MPLA party. The National Union for the Total Independence of Angola, UNITA, and two smaller parties, the FNLA and PNS, are arguing that the electoral process has failed to comply with the law and wants the results to be declared invalid. The move comes after the National Electoral Commission published final results last week, which gave MPLA 61% of the vote and UNITA 27%. More from Alcides Sakala, spokesperson of UNITA. Well, as we have been saying for well before the day of election, since the registration process has begun, we find out many, many, many irregularities during this process, uh, beginning with the registration, uh, and then uh, uh, the location of the National Assembly, most of them not really on the map as it should as it should be. Uh, there was also uh, the tabulation process in the provinces were not done according to the law in most of uh, the provinces in the country. Uh, the level of abstinence, abstinence were so high, we have more than 2 million people that uh, did not vote uh, because they find out that their names were destroyed were sent to big distances throughout the country and also there was a problem with the accreditation of the party delegates, special in the day before of the elections. So we have compiled all these irregularities and we have appealed to the courts to see what should be done because what we are saying that the process was not run according to the law. Now, throughout a two-week uh, process of vote counting, the commission repeatedly rejected complaints that the law was not being followed. What gives you confidence this time around that the Constitutional Court will overturn the result, Mr. Sakale? 
I think the most important, probably let me put that way, is that all the parties, uh, UNITA, CASASE, PRS, and CNLA, all of them, we have appealed to the court because the process was not running according of, uh, of the law. And that is clear uh, for everybody because the people are saying that we vote for change in the country, uh, but the results are far away uh, from this expectation of the people. That's why there is this climate of tension in the country, uh, uh, the presidents of the party that are in justice are appealing constantly for calm and serenity uh, as long as uh, the courts do their, uh, their job. That's our position uh, for the time. But just recently, Kenya went the same route with the opposition appealing the outcome of the vote, alleging massive uh, irregularities in the process, and uh, the Supreme Court of Appeal ruled in the opposition's favor in what was described as historic. Have you been emboldened by what happened in Kenya, Mr. Sekele? Absolutely. There was a big achievement for the Kenyan people because uh, our point is that uh, an institution should act independently whatever they position within the national context. In Angola, you find that most of, almost, or most of the institutions are influenced by the party. That's why we have really problems in approaching these institutions. So uh, I think the, the example of Kenya should be taken into account in the, in, in the electoral process in our, in our continent because that can help indeed uh, to diffuse uh, post-electoral tensions that arise uh, almost of in our, in our continent. And when is the Constitutional Court going to hear the case? Has the date been set yet for the hearing? I think they beginning already. Uh, we have a couple of days ahead, maybe five or six days ahead. Then we'll see the outcome of the results from the, the, the courts. That is Alcides Sakala, spokesperson of Angola's opposition, UNITA, on the line from Luanda in Angola. And he was in conversation there with Kumbero Mujarare. It is now time for your news headlines. Here's Chola Natulo. Thank you, Spumelele. Making headlines, three Angolan opposition parties have lodged an appeal at the Constitutional Court in the country against the outcome of last month's elections. Members of Kenya's IEC are still locked in a meeting aimed at preparing a timetable for fresh presidential elections on the 17th of next month. And finally, Hurricane Irma is continuing to pummel central Florida in the U.S. as it threatens the heavily populated Tampa and Orlando metro areas. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Thank you very much, Olana. Your time is 17.30 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa. As we continue to give you news from an African perspective, my name is Spumele Lezondi. I'm with you until 1800 hours Central African Time. Now, the World Health Organization has sounded the alarm over a cholera outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which has already claimed the lives of over 500 people and reached... Uh, 
what is said to be worrying proportions. The United Nations says cholera is a major public health problem in the country with thousands of cases registered every year. To speak to us more about this, we're now joined on the line by Tarek Jasarovic, Communications Officer at the World Health Organization in Geneva. Hello, Tarek. Hello. Uh, Tarek, what is cholera? Well, cholera is a bacterial disease that is caused by a bacteria vibrio uh, that is uh, transmitted basically through water uh, from one person to another and that, if uh, untreated, can uh, can kill up to half of people who get infected. Now, it is, uh, it is very simple and straightforward disease to treat. People who uh, have mild symptoms uh, need to uh, get uh, rehydrated through oral rehydration salts, uh, those who are uh, having a severe stage of infection need to get intravenous fluid and antibiotics. But again, if people get those basic treatments, uh, the fatality ratio can be lowered to, uh, to, to less than 1%, and this is what we want. Unfortunately, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, fatality ratio is now above 2%, uh, and it has uh, that the disease has killed more than 500 people this year. Uh, what we are seeing is an increase in number of infected persons in the past couple of months, and across the country, even in places where cholera is not considered to be endemic. So this is why it is really important that the World Health Organization supports Ministry of Health together with other partners. Uh, so uh, a multidisciplinary. Uh, a, a response can take place, and this includes obviously and foremost access to clean water, because really cholera is the is the is the, is the disease of, of the, the poor. Map of cholera in the world is map of poverty, and and it's really tribes where people cannot have access to clean water. You say people who have mild symptoms um, must get treatment. Mild symptoms of what exactly? Um, how do I know that I have symptoms of cholera? Uh, cholera is basically diarrheal disease. So uh, it is uh, it is diarrhea, uh, very strong uh, diarrhea, losing of liquid, uh, and this is why it is really important uh, uh, to get uh, rehydrated as soon as possible. Uh, so while this uh, acute phase is over, a person does not really uh, lose uh, too much of uh, of a body liquid. Uh, so it is really really important. Uh, that like any diarrheal disease, and it's really important to stress that that uh, cholera is treated as any other uh, diarrhea or acute watery diarrhea. So it is important to make sure that people get to the treatment centers or rehydration centers uh, as fast as, as possible. And in a couple of days, normally they should be okay. Um, when it gets severe, what happens? Well, again, uh, the, the, the the persons. Uh, the person who uh, has already lost a lot of liquid uh, will have a, a problem uh, with, 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 with internal organs, and this can lead to, to complications and ultimately uh, to that. Obviously, people with underlying conditions are, are, are at risk, such as, uh, but also a vulnerable population uh, like children and people with a uh, uh, compromised uh, immune uh, system. Uh, what is really, really important, again, to stress is that one aspect is the case management. So so people uh, who are infected get that treatment that they need, that it's, again, straightforward and simple, but prevention is the key. Make sure that people have access to clean water. If people uh, 
uh, do not really use contaminated water and make sure that the water they are using is clean. Uh, the, 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 the risk of getting infected is, is really low. So, so what we really need to do is to invest in the water and sanitation to make sure that, that people in countries that are seeing now cholera outbreak in different parts of Africa uh, and elsewhere as well, uh, have this access to clean water, uh, that water and sanitation investment is bigger than it is now, uh, uh, so, uh, so, so cholera will be reduced. Um, what's the problem in the DRC? So there's a problem of um, water and sanitation, is there? It, it is, it is. Again, it is the, the biggest issue. Uh, people who live uh, near the, 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 the lakes, uh, uh, along the riverbeds, because they don't have access to clean water, they will just go and, and, and get water from lakes uh, Kivu or Lake uh, Tanganyika or along the Congo River. Uh, and, and bacteria is uh, uh, present uh, in these waters. And this is what, what will make uh, uh, people sick. So, so it is really, uh, again, investment trying to get uh, people uh, having, uh, having all what they need, really, even if there is no proper uh, water system that, that people can boil the water, people can chlorinate the water, so, so, so the bacteria can no longer infect people. And as the World Health Organization, what sort of work are you doing? Uh, how do you help in that region? Well, we are basically uh, supporting uh, governments. Uh, governments are always taking the lead. The Ministry of Health of Democratic Republic of the Congo convened a meeting uh, last week uh, uh, where a number of partners were present, including UNICEF, including uh, MSF, uh, uh, including uh, a CDC, and then trying really to mobilize more resources and see where the hotspots really of the outbreak are and how, it can be, how they can be addressed. And this, again, is, is a really uh, a multidisciplinary approach. We as a WHO, we quite often provide cholera kits. These cholera kits have necessary medical equipment to treat people who are infected. But also, uh, partners like UNICEF, they take a lead uh, in water and sanitation, going to communities, trying to see how uh, a, a water and sanitation system can be improved. It is also important that community get engaged, that community knows uh, how they can uh, lower the, the risks of getting infected and how they can uh, really uh, contribute to, to the overall response. So we hope that, 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 that with, the, uh, with this mobilization we'll be able to, uh, to fill the gap. But again, uh, the, 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 the water and sanitation system needs a lot of investment in many places and this will be the key in fighting cholera. Mm. Um, at the moment, um, as we do know that the water and sanitation system is not the greatest, is there anything that the government of the Democratic Republic of Congo can do in order for one to prepare for such out- outbreaks? And at the moment, there is an outbreak um, in order to reduce the number of fatalities. Well, uh, uh, it is, as, as I have said, on one hand, it is a prevention for future outbreak, and that's a water and sanitation. And on the other hand, it's making sure that those who get infected have access uh, to, uh, to, to, to health services, so, uh, uh, so they, uh, uh, they, they don't face uh, medical complications. In that, in that regard, we are sending a, a, a cholera kit. It is important that health workers are equipped, that health centers are functional. Unfortunately, in many places in Democratic Republic of the Congo, because of insecurity uh, in some areas, lots of uh, medical uh, facilities uh, are not properly functional or are partially functional, and it's obviously making a problem because, again, for the person who is infected uh, uh, with cholera, uh, the, 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 the speed is really uh, the, the important thing to get 
to get uh, what we call RS or rehydration solution or intravenous fluids uh, as fast as possible. And thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That is Tarek Jasarevich, communications officer for from the World Health Organization. They're joining us from Geneva. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam, kwenye line ya simu hivi sasa najiunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre de soleil. Kia Makande Embalelwa Kina Miriam Está na companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do canal África, a voz de renascença africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul. Zochitika Mu África! Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. 1740 Central African Time. Corruption Watchdog Global Witness says it's found new evidence linking Zimbabwe's military and intelligence agency with several companies operating in the Marange Diamond Fields. Titled An Inside Job, the state, the security forces, and a decade of disappearing diamonds. A report by the organization uncovers how Zimbabwe's intelligence and security forces are intricately involved in all aspects of the diamond trade and how this props up the ruling party. The report lifts the lid on how several mining companies have concealed their finances and shielded their operations from public scrutiny, hiding significant stakes in these companies held by the Central Intelligence Organization, the Zimbabwean military and the government itself. As we hear from Michael Gibb, campaign leader for conflict resources at Global Witness, the diamond money is secretly being used to finance institutions responsible for gross human rights violations, he elaborates. The discovery of diamonds in Zimbabwe was, of course, um, an incredibly significant event. It was one of the largest, most recent diamond discoveries, and it brought with it so much promise and so much hope, both to the local communities, but also to Zimbabwe as a whole, expecting that this big discovery might be able to help them chart a way out of an increasingly dire economic situation. And so we've been closely following the developments in Marange and have sadly observed that far from providing that way out of a desperate economic situation, the find has developed into in what in many ways is the epitome of what is sometimes called the resource curse. So not only has the money failed to benefit ordinary Zimbabweans, failed to reach the, the millions of unemployed and those living beneath the poverty line in Zimbabwe, but the money has instead been funneled in secret and off-budget ways to many of the institutions that have been consistently implicated in violating their human rights and undermining their democracy. Zimbabwe's population have lost twice, um, first from a development perspective and then second from, from the view of their democracy and political developments. Exactly which agencies did you find to be involved? So our report documents links between Marangi Diamond Companies and Zimbabwe's military that we have linked to 
one, possibly two of the joint venture companies operating in Malangue. And then for the first time, we have also been able to provide evidence that the CIO, the Central Intelligence Organization, the domestic surveillance um, organization, may also have links to one of the companies that was until recently operating in Morangay. Now, this is especially important, we think, especially you know ahead of elections and ahead of an increasingly divisive debate about who will succeed the current president. These are both very powerful institutions, and the way in which that kind of institution is usually monitored and kept in check is by making sure that they depend for their funding on democratic and civilian bodies, you know, like the parliaments that can scrutinize and check their budgets. But when they're able to make money secretly and off the books, they become less dependent on state funds. And so it becomes harder for the democratic and civilian institutions of Zimbabwe to, to monitor them and check them and provide the necessary oversight. The research, Mr. Gibb, sets out in forensic detail how money has been stolen and where it goes. How exactly were you able to piece evidence together? As you said, this is an industry and a sector that is characterized, you know, above all by secrecy. The government has tried to point the finger of blame at private investors, suggesting they are to, to blame for the disappearing diamond money. But what we have been able to uncover is a system that in many ways was designed to allow this kind of money to disappear. So we've spoken to lots of people, both inside and outside of the country, that have information and know the sector well. Um, We've spoken to um, community members that have been able to tell us about the impact That is Michael Gibb, who is the campaign leader for conflict resources at Global Witness on the line from London. And he was in conversation with Selena Ndobong, 17.45 Central African Time. Your economics now from Wesene Matebola. Good evening. Thanks, Pumelele. Italian oil and gas company Eni denied allegations that it was involved in corruption in the Republic of Congo. The firm says it's cooperating with Italian prosecutors. State-controlled Eni said in its half-year report that the Italian finance police had told it in July that it was being investigated by Milan prosecutors for international corruption. The accusations related to agreements signed by Eni's Congo subsidiary with the Congo Republic's Minister of Hydrocarbons in 2013 up until 2015, covering exploration and production permits and the choice of partners in the African country. Human rights watchdog Global Witness says the allegations uh, should concern any investors. And South African Finance Minister Malusi Gigaba has cautioned against a weakening tax morality, saying some taxpayers tend to justify minimizing their tax payments based on perceptions of government corruption. The minister also emphasized that corporates and wealthy taxpayers are able to use expect practitioners to reduce their tax burden, while those who can't afford them have limited scope to legally reduce their payments. He said there must be equity among taxpayers. We should not have a situation where individuals who can afford to pay for advisors or complicated structures end up paying less tax than those who cannot afford such services. The closing down of the use of interest-free loans to trust to avoid donations 
takes an estate duty is an example of the measures we need to take to ensure equity between individuals. Action must also be taken to ensure corporates pay their fair share. Meanwhile, Gigaba has warned that the 2.5% rebound in economic growth in the second quarter is unlikely to be sustained this year and that overall growth this year is not expected to exceed the predicted 1.3%. We simply have to take drastic measures and do better to get the economy growing faster, bigger, sustainably and more inclusively. We cannot afford to become complacent as a, as, as a result of the quarter 2 GDP growth of 2.5% which has got us out of the recession much as it came as a welcome relief for all of us. Kenya's economy is feeling the heat of a year-long season of political campaigning and elections, which culminated in the nullification of Kenya's presidential election by the Supreme Court. That's according to the Kenyan National Chamber of Commerce and Industry. The chamber says high inflation and a weak shilling currency are expected to continue up until the country goes to fresh polls, which are set for next month. James Mureu speaks for the chamber. The truth about this nullification is it's going to have, first of all, a very huge financial implication on the country. It means organizing a fresh election. The court ought to have looked at all this before it pronounced itself. I feel this was more of a political pronouncement than a real pronouncement insofar as the election outcomes are concerned. If you look at the stock exchange, they are plummeting. Right now, we are losing 92 billion shillings per day, according to the Nairobi Stock Exchange uh, outcomes. And it's going to get worse and worse and worse. In my opinion, we must also be careful whether this is a move that comes from further than we are seeing with our naked eyes. Because if you look at the Chinese, they, are, they, were, they have been here. There are many billionaires who visit us. And these are billionaires who would like, first of all, to crash our stocks and buy these stocks at their lowest. And Zimbabwe's stock market hit a record high on Monday, propelled by local investors seeking a safe haven in an economy suffering acute shortages of foreign exchange. The Zimbabwe Stock Exchange's main industrial index touched 301 points, which is the highest since it was rebased in 2009 when Zimbabwe dumped its hyperinflation hit currency in favor of the U.S. dollar. Market capitalization reached 8.5 billion U.S. dollars, and it has more than doubled since January and added $1.77 billion in the past week. Businesses and individuals struggling to access cash from banks have found that the stock market is a safe bet for maintaining the value of their money. Financial indicators now, the dollar is trading at 12.9 South African rands, 9.89 Botswana Pula, and 9.13 Zambian Kwacha, also trading at 0.75 to the British pound and 0.83 against the euro. Commodities gold $1,347, platinum $1,040 per fine ounce, Brent crude oil is at $54.21 per barrel. And that's your economics news for now. Thank you very much, Usani. It is now time for your sports news with Musibodi Makura.
Good evening, sports fans. I am Musibu Di Makura with the latest sports news at the Sawam. And starting off with football news, Kenya's women's national football team is en route to Zimbabwe to participate at the 2017 Kosafa Women's Championship, which gets underway on Wednesday and concludes on the 24th of September. Now, Kenya have been invited to participate in the championship as the East African guest nation. Here is Harambe Starlet's head coach, Catherine Wabi. They always think uh, Kenya cannot do anything. Uh, we are underdogs and uh, we want to at least try and believe that this time we are trying to improve. We are not the same same Kenyan team that has always been, especially in this category of the underage. Now on to tennis news, following his run to the 2017 US Open final, South Africa's Kevin Anderson has jumped from 32nd to 15th in the latest official ATP Tour rankings. Anderson lost 6-3, 6-3, 6-4 to world number one Rafael Nadal in a showpiece match on Arthur Ashe Stadium on Sunday, but will be happy after reaching his first Grand Slam final. Anderson had struggled with injuries over the past two seasons, which saw his ranking drop to 80th in January earlier this year, but the South African number one's recent return to form has enabled him to move closer to his previous high of number 10, achieved back in 2015 after his run to the U.S. Open quarterfinals. Now, Anderson became the first South African to reach a Grand Slam singles final since Kevin Curran lost to Mats Willander back in the 1984 Australian Open final. Meanwhile, Rafael Nadal solidified his number one ranking while Roger Federer moved past Andy Murray to number two, former world number one Novik Djokovic, who has already taken the year off due to an injury struggles, has slipped down to number six. On to rugby news, Springbok coach Alistair Kotsia says it's time to focus on the upcoming Castle Lager Rugby Championship encounter against the All Blacks of New Zealand after finishing in a 23-all draw against Australia in Perth on Saturday. Kotsia says that Argentina showed them how to play against the All Blacks and that they are looking forward to utilising some of those ideas in their planning. So everything. I think the big thing about next week is uh, our mindset was completely different this time. We didn't think about the All Black game while we still had to play the Wallabies. Now our focus was, like I said the other day, focus was on the Wallabies to get over this one. Of course now it's uh, time to focus on the next one, which will be a hell of a battle. And uh, they still are, you know, the best side in world rugby, obviously. We've got a lot of respect, like for both these teams, you know. We've been playing year in, year out. We come here with rugby championship. It's always a hard game, six points, four points difference. And, uh, you know, I'm just pleased that outside, uh, you know, Springboks are really growing and uh, they're learning and they're taking all learning, learning experiences on board. And hopefully, you know, it will help us a lot going there next week, similar weather conditions, who knows. So we had a bit of a taste with uh, wet weather conditions tonight. Kotsia says he's pleased at the strides his team have made this season and believes it comes down to hard work and togetherness of the players. Yeah, I can just talk from a Springbok point of view and... Uh, I'm really pleased about the effort and the hard work that the players are putting in and the way they work for each other on the field. And uh, if you look at the small things, which is hardly coachable, that effort and intensity is there. They're enjoying each other and the team environment is very, very healthy. There's a lot of uh, competition in the squad. So from a Springer point of view, we, we're making huge strides. For those are sports news at the Sour stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective.
This is Africa Digest. It is 17.55 Central African time. Let's recap our top stories. Reports from South Africa suggest that President Jacob Zuma may reshuffle his cabinet. Corruption watchdog finds new evidence linking Zimbabwe's military and intelligence agency with companies operating in the Marange Diamond Fields. That wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Spumela Lezondi, producer, Luanda Mahoma, technical producer, Debo Homoswewu, and the rest of the team. Thank you very much for listening. You can send us emails. We are on info at channelafrica.com. Info at channelafrica.co.za. You can also find us on SMS. That number is plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. Plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. Channel Africa One on Twitter. We leave you with yesterday by Zagwe Zola and Zulu Boy.